ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, FP Playlist listeners. This is Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy. For this week's Playlist episode, we're featuring one of the latest interviews from FP Live, our magazine's forum for live journalism, where we discuss world affairs with the greatest experts and policymakers. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to FP Live. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. A good day to our viewers from around the world. I happen to be in Nairobi, Kenya today, which is why I didn't say good morning. I'll be joined by some great virtual guests, mostly stateside, to discuss the G20 summit and much more. What a week it's been. As world leaders convened at the G20 in Bali, Indonesia this week, missiles landed in eastern Poland on Tuesday. The origins of the missiles, as it turns out, were not Russia, as Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky initially suggested. NATO's Secretary General and Poland's President now say the incident likely occurred because of an errant missile Ukraine. They're still gathering the facts. But before the latest intelligence came in, we had some hairy moments. If the missiles were fired from Russia, the incident could have potentially triggered NATO's Article 5, you attack one of us, you attack all of us, and changed the trajectory of the war in Ukraine. I have three expert guests with me today to discuss how the strike may or may not have shifted priorities at the G20. But beyond that, we'll also discuss the economic and geopolitical implications of the summit, its aims, the key bilats, and more. We'll get to all of that in just a moment. But first, if it's your first time joining us, welcome. FP Live is where we convene experts and policymakers to discuss world affairs. FP subscribers have the opportunity to ask questions using the comments box, which my producers behind the scenes will send along to me. I already have some terrific ones in hand. We'd love to hear more from you. Let's dive right in then. The theme of this year's G20 was recover together, recover stronger. And countries from around the world were meant to tackle pressing economic matters, how to recover from the pandemic, fix the energy and food shortages plaguing various parts of the world, address sky-high inflation, and find a unified response to Russia's war in Ukraine. But the G20 is also a summit where world leaders get to have bilateral meetings with a couple dozen counterparts, many of whom they haven't seen in years. Most notably, Chinese President Xi Jinping was back in the mix. He met with Joe Biden for the first time since Biden became president. The two leaders of the world's largest economies were cordial, at least in front of cameras and press, but underlying tensions between the two nations remain high. 
China refused to support using quote-unquote war when referring to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the G20 communique that was issued at the summit's conclusion. Although one could say at least we had a communique. What are the broader implications of the Xi-Biden meeting for US-China relations? How did news out of Poland derail the summit? What else of note emerged? So many questions. Let me bring in our expert panel. Ted Alden is well known to FP subscribers. He's a columnist at Foreign Policy, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. Matt Kronig is also an FP columnist. He's just returned from Bali, where he was monitoring the summit for about 10 days. Matt's a professor at Georgetown University. His latest book is The Return of Great Power Rivalry. Of course, he writes FP's It's Debatable column with Emma Ashford. And last but not least, Lynn Kwok. She is not an FP columnist, but I hope to change that one day. She's a senior fellow for Asia Pacific Security. Uh, at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, as well as a visiting professor at Georgetown University and a senior research fellow at the University of Cambridge. Hey, you three, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having us. All right, welcome to FB Live. Um, Matt, I'm going to start with you since you just got back from the G20 and you're very jet lagged. Um, I just want to start quickly with the missile strike in Poland. When news of that broke, how did it impact things at the summit? Just give us a sense of what you, what you saw and heard on the ground. Yes, well, I was in Bali for the past 10 days and just got back at 7 a.m. this morning. So if I'm a little uh, jet lagged, please uh, forgive me. Uh, but, but it did throw the proceedings off course. The leaders were planning on going to visit a mangrove uh, forest uh, yesterday morning, a little bit of downtime and uh, opportunity to interact with each other informally. And then this news broke. And, and of course, at first, nobody knew what happened. And, and many suspected uh, the worst. Many suspected that it was a Russian uh, missile strike, maybe intentional, maybe uh, that went astray. And so President Biden called this emergency meeting of uh, the, the G7 countries, the, the closer allies to discuss uh, what to do. Uh, in, in the end, they, they decided to wait and gather more information. And as we know now, that was the right uh, decision because it, as you pointed out, turns out it wasn't a Russian strike, but a Ukrainian uh, missile defense interceptor that, that went astray. You know, and I have to ask, Matt, you were sort of at, at the leaders' dinner, just a, a stone's throw away from some of the world's most powerful leaders and autocrats. Uh, MBS was there from Saudi, Xi Jinping, of course. Um, what was your take? How were they interacting with each other? Yeah, it was uh, fascinating. I must have been invited by mistake, but I was invited to the official leaders' dinner. There were a couple of hundred people, including you know, the 18 most uh, powerful people in the world. Um, Putin uh, wasn't there. And then Biden uh, didn't show up either. Um, and uh, you know, people were rumors uh, flowing around that maybe he had COVID. Turns out uh, he had a cold. Uh, but it was interesting watching them uh, interact. Uh, you know, they're, they're people just like us. They seemed bored at, at points in the dinner and uh, looked um, eager yeah. to leave. Um, I, I was surprised at how little uh, security there was. You know, I could have walked up and uh, patted Xi on, on the back. Um, and um, uh, Xi and MBS were sitting next to each other at dinner, and um, many of the other leaders were kind of quiet. There was a performance. They were watching the performance, but Xi and MBS were going back and forth all night and was uh, really curious to know, know what the two of them were, were talking about. Wow, that's just fascinating. Well, 
Um, great that you could be a fly on the wall there. Lynn, let me bring you in. What were your broader takeaways um, from the summer bit Hodge? Sorry, say that again, please, Ravi. Lynn, I was asking you what the broader takeaways were for you as you were watching this from afar. Well, I think there were several takeaways from the uh, summit itself. Um, I think what really struck me was that at um, a forum that's usually meant for discussion of uh, geoeconomic issues and to resolve the uh, world's most pressing economic problems, of which we have many right now, we saw really the war in Ukraine um, front and center of discussions. And we saw that with that being the very first um, item uh, during uh, that was uh, discussed in the Bali leaders uh, declaration. And so that was very striking to me. And I think what that demonstrates to me is that we really cannot have a discussion on the global economy these days without a discussion of broader geostrategic uh, issues. Um, much like if um, Asia was trying to convince the rest of the world that you really couldn't have discussion about security without discussion about economics in Asia. So both of uh, the two issues, geoeconomics as well as geostrategy and geopolitics, those are joined at the hip and must be discussed together. Um, I think um, the West has learned that about Asia. The question now for me is whether or not Asia will learn, to learn about the importance about geostrategic and geopolitical developments in the rest of the world and the rules-based order in the rest of the world um, as having clear and present implications for Asia and act accordingly, accordingly. And I think that brings me to my second point, namely that um, despite um, important Ukraine and what it means for the rules-based order, um, we saw a very divided response amongst um, G20 members. Um, and I think that's uh, unfortunately unfortunate uh, for obvious reasons, but also because I think it suggests to us um, what might the possible implications or the responses be in the event of, say, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, if in the event, if, if given um, the egregious transgressions of Russia in invading Ukraine. And if that has received such a lukewarm response from Asia, what more if China were to, to invade Taiwan? And, and many of these countries in Asia have very close economic relations with China and would be very reluctant uh, to jeopardize that. And of course, many of them say that, you know, they, they follow this one China policy, which means that they have to be uh, quiet on mm. issues, of course. So, you know, if they, you know, didn't respond, um, didn't have a forward-leaning enough response in the respect of Russia and Ukraine, what more of their response in respect of China-Taiwan? Mm. So just uh, riffing off of that, let me bring in uh, Ted. Um, you know, there's there's been so much talk this year about sort of a, a new non-alignment. And as Lynn was describing it, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine has sort of split, um, you know, cleaved the world into these two parts, really, in a sense. Um, did you get the sense from 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 watching the summit from afar that with the publication of a communique, uh, maybe some of those divisions are are being bridged a little bit at least? I would I would say a little bit, and I think in fact that was the the, the key takeaway for me from the summit was the evidence that both President Biden and President Xi of China are very concerned about these non-aligned countries, if we want to call them that, that there is a real competition going on for the rest of the world. I think that's why President Xi 
was so uh, public and engaged in this meeting. Remember, he, he basically hasn't left China for more than two years, other than a brief recent visit to Uzbekistan. Um, you had a very good uh, piece in foreign policy recently by my friend Scott Kennedy about Chinese isolationism. Yeah. And Scott pointed out that this was an opportunity for President Xi to break out of that. I think he did, you know, a whole series of important bilateral meetings as as Matt's pointing out, you know, very public uh, uh, presence there uh, at the summit. I also think President Biden was doing the same. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, in Asia about what this friendshoring concept means in terms of, of trade and the other aspects of economic engagement. Does that mean, you know, the U.S. is going to demand that, you know, countries all align with the American position over Ukraine or over a broad base of value issues? Or is the United States going to reach out to these countries? I mean, you were in Sharm el-Sheikh. I, I thought one of the most important substantive announcements at the meeting was the $20 billion in U.S. assistance for Indonesia to transition away yeah. from coal to clean energy. I mean, one of the real issues in terms of the U.S. and China is, is the U.S. and, and its allies, are, you know, are we going to come up with money for the developing world uh, or, or you know, are the Chinese going to continue to dominate with their Belt and Road Initiative? So I thought that was an extremely important initiative. It was it was played prominently in, in some of it. So yeah, I think mm. the question of, of these non-aligned countries was front and center in the, in the meeting. Yeah, and you know, just to add to what you said, Ted, um, uh, the U.S. and China also sort of reaffirmed that they would resume cooperation on climate change, which I'm sure is something that would be cheered on um, at Sharm el-Sheikh, where, of course, the agenda this year was all about adaptation, uh, implementation, uh, words like loss and damage. Uh, so definitely a real mood shift and all of the above approach to how to deal with climate change, which I imagine uh, will be cheered on a little bit in the global south, uh, as long as um, people actually live up to promises to deliver the money uh, they're saying they'll hand out. Um, I just want to shout out to um, some of our FP subscribers who've sent in questions. Um, Jose Antonio Zaria, uh, Olga Yoldi, Nancy Beveridge, Ed Ward, Vicky Penosian, Cyrus Lloyd, uh, Clement Duku, uh, Dale Bernhard, I see you all, uh, terrific questions coming in, and I'm sort of channeling them into my own questions as we go along. Um, Lynn, I want to bring you back in. Uh, you know, so many eyes were on the meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. Uh, Biden told reporters after the meeting that this was not by any means a kumbaya, but he also shot down any indications that you know, we're looking at a new Cold War between the two countries. What was your take on the meeting? Did anything surprise you at all? Um, I don't think there was much of a surprise um, that came out of the meeting. Um, what I took away from the meeting was, number one, what many of the um, analysts have already observed, namely that it was a positive development that uh, both uh, C and Biden uh, appeared to recognize the importance of keeping channels of communication open. Um, I wouldn't go as far as uh, some of these analysts, however, in saying that, you know, that puts us, you know, that's, you know, a huge uh, reason for relief, because I think that while that might pull us back from the precipice, if, um, if or when we arrive at the precipice, um, it 
will not fundamentally change the tra trajectory of US-China relations, which I think are on a negative downward path. And um, we could easily point to various policies during the Trump administration that have uh, led to deterioration in US-China relations. But more recently, of course, we have during the Biden administration, you know, the US ban on uh, semiconductors, uh, advanced semiconductors, mm. and the equipment needed to produce them, as well as the recent uh, Pelosi visit um, to Taiwan, which were viewed as very provocative on China's uh, part. But of course, you know, China's perception of the, the threat that the United States poses has not been forged just over the last two administrations. It's been a long time coming. Uh, we had in um, 1995 to 1996, the you know, Taiwan Strait crisis. In 1999, um, the the U.S. bombing of uh, the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, with very few Chinese believe uh, was an accident. We had, you know, George W. Bush labeling China a strategic competitor after the EP3 incident, and of course, you know, um, Hillary Clinton, Secretary Clinton, mm -hmm. then um, in 2012. Uh, stating very clearly that the U.S. has national interest in freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, thereby uh, throwing the U.S. hat in the South China Sea ring. And so all these um, incidents uh, compounded by the recent two administrations and, and the uh, very heightened competition between the United States and China have all, of course, um, uh, reinforced uh, Chinese perception of the U.S. threat. And of course, I don't think we're going to see China, despite improved rhetoric, or the United States even, despite improved rhetoric um, actually hold back into uh, the competition that will lead us down a rather negative path. I think the one thing that was uh, quite good to see in respect of the communications between uh, President, Biden and, uh, President Biden and President Trump was the fact that I think President Biden has toned down his language in terms of framing political mm. competition um, that's occurring right now. Um, he um, tone down the language about, you know, authoritarian states versus democracies. Um, I think that um, is not um, a good framing of what is happening right now. It unnecessarily deepens divisions between the United States and China. And of course, from the U U.S. perspective, um, it alienates potential partners as well as strategic space to China. And I think the recent um, national security strategy that the U.S. launched in, I think, October um, was a positive sign in so far as it demonstrated a more nuanced approach uh, to this issue. Yeah, look, and obviously with, with all those leaders there, the autocracy versus democracy sort of framework is not going to appeal to uh, an MBS or a Modi or an Erdogan. So uh, there is that, of course. Um, uh, Matt, let me bring you back in. Uh, just staying on, on, on the Biden-Xi meeting, Biden also afterwards made sure to state that the American position on Taiwan hasn't changed. This confused me because Biden's the one who said time and again, I think maybe four times, if not five times, that uh, he, he sort of moved moved off of the official one China policy line and then everyone's had to race to correct him. Uh, what was your take of on, on whether anything has moved the needle there? Well, I had a, a smart White House um, official ex explain how this is actually all consistent. Uh, and, and so what uh, she said is, uh, we still have the uh, policy of strategic ambiguity. Um, you know, maybe we would defend Taiwan, maybe we wouldn't. Um, that hasn't changed. Uh, 
Uh, she said what that means, though, is that at any given moment, it's up to the president to decide, you know, would I defend Taiwan right now or not? And so she said when Biden made these four utterances, uh, I guess now uh, uh, fifth, um, you know, that that was him saying what his opinion was at that moment, uh, but that the overall policy uh, of the United States hadn't changed, that it's still ambiguity. Maybe we would, maybe we wouldn't. So, so this was a smart White House official trying to pr present a coherent story. Um, it it kind of makes sense to me, but I still think much of the rest of the world is still still confused. Right, of course. And I think in much of the rest of the world, you imagine that when you hear from a president, uh, what he or she says goes, and it's not as nuanced as, as what you're making it out to seem. Um, but of course, uh, it makes sense that the White House would try to do that. Um, Ted, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you wrote this great piece for us on uh, the Biden administration's latest set of uh, sanctions that make it much harder for China to access the global semiconductor market. Um, John Bateman also wrote a, a very good piece for us on that very issue. Um, what's your sense of, you know, where that is headed now since you wrote that piece? You know, how much will that lead to a broader tech and economic decoupling? And is there anything that you saw this week that might smooth over some of those tensions from last month? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, what I was struck by this week was... Uh, Apple announcing that, you know, beginning in 2024, it's going to start sourcing chips from the new Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation plant in Arizona. You know, TSMC stock jumped 10% on that announcement. I mean, if Apple is beginning to hedge its bets in terms of China, that suggests that the broader decoupling we've been talking about for a long time is, is underway. I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind that the tech controls continue to be relatively narrow. They're on the most advanced uh, chips and chip making equipment. Uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, has been quite clear that you know, the attention here is to retard Chinese progress at the, at the top end of the technological chain. Uh, the challenge for the US is getting allies on board. Um, this was not fully negotiated out with, for instance, the Dutch ASM. Uh, I think I'm getting right. You know, one of the biggest equipment. But but, but surely they can compel. Uh, they can compel sort of compliance out of countries and companies, right? I mean, that's yeah. The U.S. can do this. I mean, through what they call the foreign direct product rule, there is a tool there to do that. I think the Biden administration would prefer to have active cooperation from the allies. So those discussions are still underway. But I, I think at the end of the day, um, China is going to lose access to these high-end chips and the chip-making uh, equipment. The second part of your question to me is a more interesting one, which is the question of a broader economic decoupling, right? I mean, you could imagine a set of controls, even a fairly robust set of controls on um, products and technologies that really, you know, that raise security concerns, but still have a very broad and deep economic relationship between China and the West. I mean, I think that's what the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, that was his message when he went to Germany, right? We're not looking, you know, we the Germans are not looking for a broad economic decoupling with China. And I, and I think, you know, the jury is still out on that one. I think it's gonna be a very interesting debate here in the United States. Can you draw that line and say, okay, trade in these products is fine, trade in these products is not, or, you know, if relations continue to worsen as Lynn is suggesting, will you begin to hear, look, anything that, you know, brings hard currency to the Chinese, anything that helps the Chinese advance economically is not in the interest of the United States. And that would be the scenario for a broader uh, decoupling. 
Lynn, let me bring you in on that. You know, I mean, you're usually based in Singapore. I'm curious for your sense of, you know, more of a regional Asian reaction to uh, this idea of tech decoupling or economic decoupling between the United States and China. How is it seen there? And has anything changed in the last week on that front? Um, obviously, I think the region uh, considers any form of economic decoupling, which will hurt um, the, the region's uh, prosperity is negative. Um, I think there's been some uh, net positive results for some of the countries as you know they benefit from uh, movement away from China into some of these countries like Vietnam, the Philippines, etc. But I think they recognize that that's a short term that's a short term uh, gain um, in the long term problem of uh, a decoupling between the United States and China technologically, economically, and potentially, of course, you know, uh, geopolitically, because, you know, that destabilizes the region. And um, we consistently hear about how the region doesn't want uh, to choose sides uh, between the United States and uh, China and you know, we saw reinforcement, I guess, of the message, say, in the Shangri-La Dialogue, which my institute um, hosts every year. So in June this year, we saw very um, equivocal comments coming out from uh, countries in the region. So for instance, when we had uh, the Malaysian defense minister speak, um, he was um, asked to, he identified the various challenges that he saw as pressing for the region, and none of them um, in, in, none of, in none of these challenges were about geostrategic competition or even uh, China. Mm. We see them being very careful to balance between the two countries. Um, and if we look at um, Indonesia, for instance, uh, the defense minister then talked about how the region has done very well in managing its problems for the last few decades and could continue to do so without outside assistance. Thank you very much. Again, signaling that they would prefer not to have mm. to so I think this whole uh, technological and economic decoupling puts them in a bit of a pickle, uh, even though in the short term, perhaps mm. in some uh, uh, positive economic benefits. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Could I Matt, jump in? in? Yeah, I was about to come to you. Quickly, yeah. Uh, you know, because one of the um, kind of cr criticisms of the G20 is, you know, can this group of 20 countries really agree on issues? And we saw some of the wordsmithing in the communique to uh, present uh, the, the appearance of consensus. Um, but, you know, you do have a lot of working level experts on the ground. There is time for um, side meetings. And um, so, so I was told that there were uh, meetings among like-minded nations about this issue of decoupling from China without China uh, in the room, which I thought was um, pretty interesting. Fascinating. Uh, uh, Fascinating. I also heard, um, I think Adam Tooze just wrote about this for us. Uh, if it hasn't published, it will shortly. I get to read all these pieces before they publish. Um, but that China was was incredibly open uh, with Western reporters about um, having been kept in the dark about uh, uh, Russia's designs on Ukraine, um, which I thought was an, an interesting sort of new um, bit of information there. But Matt, um, uh, just to sort of wrap up on China, do you think do you think Xi Jinping got what he wanted to get out of the summit? I mean, he's been sort of in relative isolation for for years now. And 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 here he comes, uh, gets to meet all these world leaders in one go. I think he did achieve what he wanted to achieve, and um, at the leaders' dinner, he, he probably had the most star power. Uh, you know, when he he walked in, it seemed like kind of more people stood up and uh, were taking photos with their selfies than 
for anyone else. And, and I guess that makes sense. He has been called the, the most powerful man uh, in the world. Um, I, I think I ultimately agree with Lynn, though. I'm, I'm skeptical that much is going to talk, uh, come out of this talk about cooperation. Um, you know, uh, there's just so much confrontation in other areas, uh, decoupling uh, militarily. I don't know how we compartmentalize you know, these uh, few areas of uh, public health and, and climate while there's this intense uh, competition going on. Um, the other thing that was notable to me is um, Biden um, essentially said she told me there's not an imminent threat to Taiwan and, and I believe him. And I thought that was notable given that his own administration, the chief of naval operations just a week or two ago, uh, said that he's thinking about a 2022 or 2023 uh, time frame. It, it almost reminded me of um, Trump talking to Putin and saying, you know, Putin didn't interfere in the elections. He he told me, uh, you know, almost Biden seeming to side with Xi over his own uh, defense officials. Robbie, could I? Yeah, let's hope it's not wishful thinking. Uh, Ted, I was going to come to you. Go for it. Just make one more slightly positive point. I mean, one of the really concerning things about the U.S.-China relationship in recent months has been there absolutely no conversations between the two sides, complete diplomatic isolation. You know, you had that very contentious early meeting between the Chinese foreign minister and Secretary Blinken and, and NSC advisor uh, Jake Sullivan in Alaska. Things kind of went downhill from there. And then following Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, all contact, including military to military, was cut off. One, I think one of the big outcomes of the summit was there seems to be an effort by both sides to re-engage. There's talk about Secretary Blinken visiting China and maybe at least restarting dialogue doesn't solve the fundamental problems that Matt and Lynn are talking about. But when you deal with the potential for confrontation, you do want countries talking to each other at multiple levels, including military to military. Yeah, it's so important. Um, Ted, just staying with you, and I, I said no more China, but I've got to get this one in. Um, the, the video that has emerged of Xi Jinping speaking to Canada's Justin Trudeau, um, I've been watching a lot of CNN and BBC out here in Kenya, and uh, the phrase that they keep using is it was a dressing down. Um, and just to explain it for viewers who haven't seen it, um, Xi Jinping catches uh, Trudeau uh, in sort of a, a corridor somewhere. It's being filmed, we think, maybe by Canadians. Um, and Xi Jinping basically says, uh, you, you leaked uh, a previous conversation uh, Trudeau then goes on to say, uh, you know, we, we need to have an open and honest dialogue, and that includes criticism. And then Xi Jinping sort of almost cuts him off and says, uh, but only when the conditions are right, or something to that effect. Ted, what did you make of that? Yeah, I think, I think you captured it pretty well. I mean, just really quickly on the history here. I mean, Canada is is feels wounded in various ways in terms of the relationship with China. I mean, early on in Trudeau's term, there was serious talk about a free trade agreement between China and the United States. And then you have the whole set of affairs surrounding the Canadian arrest of Meng Wanzhou, the chief financial officer of Huawei, the big Chinese telecoms company, at U.S. request, and the Chinese responding very aggressively by kidnapping and jailing uh, two Canadian citizens, Michael Spavor and Michael Covert. I mean, this has been front, it was front page news in Canada for a year and a half while all this was going out. So there's a lot of bruised feelings in Canada. Um, but I think, you know, part of what Trudeau is trying to do for his own public is present this image of Canada as, you know, very open and transparent and standing up for Canadian values. And, and, and I think, you know, he had this, what was apparently, Matt may know more, but a sort of sideline conversation 
with President Xi, not a formal summit. And then the details of that made their way to the Canadian media. And I think she was pretty upset about this. And, and it goes with what we've been talking about here, that I think President Xi was looking to re-engage with the world. There was a conversation with multiple leaders, including Prime Minister Trudeau. And for Trudeau to kind of make the public spectacle out of it, I seems from what we've heard there that President Xi took that as, a, as something of an affront. Uh, the latest thing that came out this morning was apparently as, uh, as President Xi was walking away from that conversation, he muttered under his breath, how naive. So it doesn't look all that good, I think, for Canada's Prime Minister. Yeah, I haven't seen that clip yet, but I'd love to. Uh, if if that's what he uh, said, then uh, I'm sure that'll get a lot of play in Canada as well. Um, let's move on to the G20 communique. Uh, we weren't sure if there, there was going to be one. Um, Matt, let me bring you in there. Um, you know, the, the declaration sort of, I mean, on many levels, just sums up the state of geopolitics. Um, what, what did you make of sort of the language that emerged um, and and do you think, uh, you know, did it surprise you at all that that's where they ended up? Well, I think one thing that surprised me were, were the third and fourth paragraphs, the third paragraph about the war in Ukraine and the fourth paragraph about uh, Russia's nuclear threats, uh, because there has been a debate uh, within the G20 for some time of, of is this just really an economic grouping or is it a broader uh, geopolitical Body. I, I think it would make sense for it to become a broader geopolitical body and deal more with security issues. But I think the um, uh, the decision has been more, no, we're, we're really an economic grouping. We're not going to do the security issues. But then here you see this communique and the third and fourth paragraphs are about high security issues, war, uh, nuclear threats. And I, th I think it just goes to show the kind of world that we're living in, that you can't really focus on these economic issues uh, without um, taking into account the geopolitics. Um, and uh, also food security was, was a major issue at the summit and in the communique. Uh, and, and same thing there, what, what's driving the food security? Well, the, the war in Ukraine and uh, two of the biggest breadbaskets on, on earth having their uh, exports disrupted uh, is, is a major cause. So if you wanna address food security, stopping, uh, stopping the war is the first and most important thing you can, you can do. Uh, so I guess the, the geopolitics laced throughout the document was what was most notable to me. You know, Lynn, it occurs to me that we, just in speech, in this conversation, we use the word war so easily. I, I mean, obviously it is a war. Uh, it's Russia's war in Ukraine, and China wouldn't agree to denounce uh, the war in Ukraine or even call it a war. Um, and on the other hand, um, you know, Ted mentioned this earlier, but it's clear that you know, China wants to sort of distance itself a little bit from this narrative of China against the West. What's your view on this, Lynn? I think if we go back uh, to look at the various um, statements coming out from the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the immediate aftermath um, of the of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we will see a great China, a great reluctance on China's part to um, get involved in this issue in the sense that okay. They, they made, I think, what they perhaps now recognize was a blunder of issuing a joint statement with uh, Russia in the weeks preceding the invasion to, to pledge um, an unlimited friendship. Um, but uh, so they couldn't backtrack, we seem to backtrack from that too much. But if we look at the weeks after the invasion, all the statements that they issued, 
they looked like a very reluctant party. And I suppose, you know, their refusal to condemn uh, the war as a war or the invasion as an invasion is part of this balancing act and not wanting to lose face, but also not wanting to get to 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 throw its weight behind something that's clearly indefensible. Um, that you know goes against uh, China's insistence on the sovereignty and uh, political integrity of uh, countries, um, and that just puts um, China on the wrong side um, of history in so many respects. And of course, this war, um, uh, Russia's war on Ukraine, of course, affects China as well in the sense that it's allowed various. Uh, various countries, various um, parties to actually paint China with the same broad brush as Russia, which I think is incredibly damaging for China and its um, its uh, influence, desired influence in the world. And, you know, we uh, I mentioned earlier that um, Chinese officials have been telling Western journalists um, that they were kept in the dark. Um, does that strike you as something we'll see more of in the coming months now. And how much of a departure is that from Chinese policy generally? Um, I think um, in the early days of the invasion, obviously they they kept it unclear about whether or not they, they knew or they didn't know. But I think, um, uh, I think in Asia, at least most people did think, or most analysts in Asia did think, myself included, did think that they were kept in the, in the dark. So I'm not sure, you know, whether you, call it a departure or not, what was the departure was that now they're now making that clear. Um, so, mm. so that's um, that's that's what I would state about that. I'm not sure if, if I could possibly return to the question um, of Taiwan and the shortened timeline in terms of an invasion, because I think that's very, very important. We have seen heightened tensions between the United States and China because of worries over the threat of a possible invasion, um, whether it's imminent, whether, you know, as the uh, chief of naval officer yep. in 2023, 2024, or as the former commander of the Indo-Pacific Command, Phil Davidson said, you know, by 2027. Um, I think, you know, we, we've been focused so much on U.S. assessment of Chinese capability, because in fact, that's what the U.S. is saying. This, they're saying this is when we think that China will be able to successfully invade Taiwan. But we also need to kind of look at uh, China's assessment of its own capability and what it thinks about that particular issue. Um, in a sense, that's more relevant, right? And, and, and in terms of how the in Russia's invasion of Ukraine would have impacted Chinese assessment of of those cap of its own capabilities to um, to to take military action against Taiwan. So that's one. But the other thing that we need to look at that we have have not looked at enough is uh, Chinese intent because it's about it's both about capabilities but also about intent to invade, right? And and if we look at the Chinese modus modus operandi thus far, at least. It has been a lot about, you know, gray zone operations, like gray zone between war and peace, not, you know, infringing straight into, not going straight into war, but, you know, that gray zone between war and peace, the gray zone between legality and illegality. And China has been very good at um, sort of taking advantage of that particular gray zone. Um, so it hasn't taken outright actions that would um, infringe international law and that would, you know, um, perhaps coalesce the, the international community against it, um, but more, you know, more, you know, salami slicing tactics, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, and the flip side of that, of course, is that it's a trend and, you yeah. know, the, the end of that trend line could be an attack. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, Ted, let me bring you in. I mean, you've covered so many uh, G20s as a journalist, uh, back when you have the FT, of course. Um, 
you know, what does it strike you from from this summit about the the importance uh, of of the G20? Um, you know, coming as it does uh, after UNGA, um, after COP twenty seven. Uh, you know, so many of these big summits are often maligned as a talk fest where not much gets done. But at the same time, this is a, a less unwieldy summit where you have what sort of, you know, 80% of the world economy, 60% of the world's population represented. Um, is this an effective gathering? I don't think we're going to do any better. I think that's the, the point. I don't think that there is an alternative um, formulation, alternative set of members, an alternative set of procedures that would work any better than what we've got with the G20. I mean, the G7 is more cohesive, but it doesn't speak for most of the world. The G20 is far more inclusive and includes the countries you need to include. I mean, I was encouraged by two things. I'm, I'm in my this rare position today of feeling more optimistic than my colleagues, but I, I said two very positive. First, that there was a communique at all. I mean, the run-up meetings of finance... Yeah ministers and other, there were no communiques. So that was very positive. And also the extent to which Russia was sidelined. I mean, the foreign minister Lavrov left early. The fact that it was possible, even with all the caveats in the language, for the rest of the countries to come together and issue this communique. And, and in a sense, kind of push uh, Russia out, I thought was very encouraging. And I think speaks well for the future of the G20 as the, the least worst option we have for this sort of international uh, economic and increasingly, as Matt points out, security cooperation. Yeah, Matt, I'm going to give you the last word because you're jet lagged. Um, you know, Russia was you know mostly absent from these meetings. Um, you know, Putin obviously wasn't there. Lavrov came in, left early. I believe he had to be hospitalized for a bit. Um, what was your sort of uh, overall kind of take of, you know, Russia's role this time in the G20, and then leave us with some closing thoughts. Well, uh, well I think I think you're right that they uh, didn't play as, as much of a role as they uh, have in the past or would have had Putin been present, had, had Lavrov uh, stayed. Um, and, and I do think that there is, um, you know, widespread concern about the, the war in um, Ukraine, uh, including from China, as we've alluded to before. And, and so just uh, to uh, you know, tr look ahead a little bit, uh, India is taking over uh, and will host next year's G20 summit. And um, what I'm told is that it was really Modi and, and the Indians that played a critical role in getting the communique and working on this uh, language, you know, most uh, countries um, or, or whatever it was. Uh, and so I think maybe that's a, a hopeful sign that maybe India can be um, a bridge builder uh, between the non-aligned movement and the, the free world. And um, maybe that suggests good things to come at the summit next year in India. Let's hope for that. Uh, I think my uh, one of our uh, columnists, Michael Kugelman, is going to write about exactly this issue in FP today. So look out for that in a few hours. That's all we have time for. Um, great to have you all here in FP Live and hope to have you back soon, of course. You've been listening to FP Live, foreign policy's platform for live journalism. If you're interested in learning more or want to watch the next FP Live, check out our website at foreignpolicy.com slash live. Thanks for listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. Our production team includes Tal Alroy, Laura Rosbrow-Tallum, Rosie Julin, and Yure Wu. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening. 
Hi, FP Playlist listeners. Wanted to let you know we are going to take a short break for the Thanksgiving holiday. Now is a great time to catch up on some of our other podcasts currently in season, like The Negotiators and The Long Game. See you back in this feed after the holiday. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.